Laudator Jesus Christus, praise be Jesus Christ. This is Matt Gaspers, Managing Editor of Catholic Family News, and I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague, Dr. Brian McCall, who is the Editor-in-Chief of CFN. Hello, Brian. I hope the first couple days of September have been pleasant for you. Yes, been, been good. I hope uh, as well for you. And the school year is getting getting started well for you, I hope. Your students are uh, <laughs> diligent like they should be, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, we have some very interesting stories to discuss this week, um, beginning with a new and lengthy interview granted by Pope Francis to a Spanish radio station, which covers several significant topics. We won't have time to discuss even half of them today, but we're going to just focus on just a few, kind of zero in and do a deep dive on just a few of them. Uh, second, we're going to be looking at a new Texas law which protects unborn children after a fetal heartbeat has been detected, so some good news, as well as the Supreme Court's 5-4 decision to deny injunctive relief to abortionists, so essentially to leave the law in place. So a double dose of good news, pro-life news there. Yes. Also going to be looking at a, a new document that came out in um, mid-August, which uh, combats gender ideology, and it's issued by Bishop Michael Burbage of the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia. And lastly, as, as some of our viewers and, and listeners may know, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano has released a lengthy new text uh, the first one that he's released for a little while, he's been having a little bit of respite, as I understand. Uh, he Back in uh, early to mid-August, he released his call for prayer on the um, a prayer of exorcism, the prayer of Leo XIII, on the vigil of, the, um, of Our Lady's Assumption, but he hasn't really released much since then. So he's got, uh, he's been clearly doing some thinking and praying and has some new insights to share with us uh, regarding the Great Reset and the New World Order. Yes. So it should be a, a great show, lots of interesting stuff to discuss today. Before we get into the news, as always, we'll take a brief look at the church's liturgical calendar and spend a few moments pondering the things that are above, as St. Paul says, and grounding ourselves in the, the spiritual riches of Holy Mother Church. So today is Thursday, September 2nd, 2021, and it is the feast on the traditional Roman calendar, the feast of St. Stephen, King of Hungary, who ruled that nation from the year of our Lord 997 to 1038. And uh, what's one thing that struck me from today's Mass, I, I loved the post-communion prayer uh, from the, the Missal, which reads in English, Quote, grant we beseech thee, almighty God, that we may follow with due devotion the faith of blessed Stephen, thy confessor, who, by spreading this same faith, became worthy to pass from an earthly realm to the glory of a heavenly kingdom. So it's a good reminder, just like last week we had the feast of St. Louis IX, King of France, that we are called, even in the lay state, to be heralds of the gospel and spread the faith. Uh, just looking in my hand missile, I like the description for St. Stephen. It says, St. Stephen consecrated his kingdom, Hungary, to our blessed lady. This apostolic king, that's a great phrase, apostolic king, won over his enemies and converted his people to Christianity. He died famous for his justice and his boundless charity. And may we be so blessed to have the same set of us when our time comes to pass from this life. Mm. Especially for our, our rulers, may uh, St. Stephen intercede for our civil rulers in our day. We are in desperate need of more rulers like him. And uh, we give thanks to God that his nation, Hungary, seems to be having a Christian revival uh, in recent years i think they haven't explicitly if i understand if i remember correctly they have an explicitly christian constitution currently yes they do so, so that's very good news uh other saints and feasts celebrated since our last show include the great saint augustine or augustine of hippo the great bishop and doctor probably the most famous convert after saint paul the apostle whose feast was on uh, Saturday, August 28th. 
the next day, Sunday, of course, but uh, on the traditional Roman calendar, it's also the beheading of St. John the Baptist, August 29th, a great feast. Uh, August 30th was St. Rose of Lima. And yesterday we celebrated the feast of St. Giles. I believe, is, that, is it Giles or Giles? I think Giles. Giles, I think, yes. Yes, a sixth century hermit and abbot. And I also wanted to mention tomorrow, September 3rd, is the feast of the great Pope St. Pius X, who reigned from 1903 to 1914, and who is a, a very important saint for all of us here at Catholic Family News and our mission to expose and vigorously oppose modernism, which, uh, which St. Pius X called the synthesis of all heresies in Pashendi, its landmark encyclical published in 1907. Yes, I know our uh, dear predecessor, John Venari, God rest his soul, was very devoted to St. Pius X, and uh, I'm sure considered St. Pius X kind of an, an unofficial patron of CFN. Yes. So we ask for St. Pius X's intercession for our work. And lastly, before we jump into our news stories today, we do have two brief updates on stories covered last week, kind of follow-ups. The first one has to do with Cardinal Raymond Burke. So over last weekend on Saturday, August 28th, His Eminence released a letter of gratitude in which he offers, quote, deep uh, gratitude to God who has brought me to this point of healing and recovery. As we reported last week, he has been taken off the ventilator and moved out of the ICU and into a regular hospital room. So he is improving, thanks be to God. And his eminence also offers, quote, heartfelt thanks uh, to the doctors, nurses, and numerous hospital staff who have taken care of him, as well as to the priests who have ministered to him sacramentally. And he explains, you know, of course, he's going to be um, convalescing healing for an extended period now that he's, you know, through the, the darkest part. So he says he will only be uh, providing occasional updates when there is something significant to share. So we'll continue to keep him in our thoughts and prayers and, and hope that he experiences a full recovery. And then Brian wanted to share another brief update regarding the whole story with uh, the Israeli rabbis and their dubia to Pope Francis. Yes. So as we reported last week, Pope Francis had been giving a, a series of catechism talks or audience talks on uh, St. Paul's letter to Galatians, particularly on the law. And he made a big point about how the law doesn't save, the law can't save you. And, and we analyzed the, the problems with his statements. Well, it seems Catholic Family News wasn't the only group that uh, were not happy with what he was saying and his disparagement of the Ten Commandments uh, as yeah, I follow them, but they're not absolutes. A group of, as we reported last week, uh, rabbis from Israel wrote a, a, an indignant letter and said that they thought these comments were insulting to the Jewish religion, thought they represented a return to supersessionism, the idea that the old law has now been superseded, uh, and demanded clarification. They sent that letter to Cardinal Koch, and he said there would be a response. Well, so far there has been what I guess I would call an unofficial response. Um, it, it came here, you see, it, was, it is released by the Vatican uh, News Service, uh, but it is not directly from Pope Francis, although it's close to it. Uh, it, it is from uh, a, um, a, uh, a person uh, who has been known to be the, the sort of ghostwriter or you know, person who helped Pope Francis um, to write um, Boris Letizia, for example, Archbishop Victor Manuel Fernandez of La Plata, Argentina. Uh, again, he uh, is an archbishop, so he's speaking as an archbishop. He's being published in Vatican News Service, and he does apparently have close ties to the Pope, and he's written things for him. Uh, so although it doesn't explicitly say it's a response, it reads very much like it. He begins saying, you know, yes. St. Paul talking about justification and, uh, and, and the law and, and commenting exactly on what Pope Francis was talking about. And he says it's essential to remember that some texts of the Old Testament and many extra-biblical Jewish texts already showed a religiosity of trust in God's love and invited one to a fulfillment of the law actuated in the depths of the heart through divine action. So essentially what the whole answer is, is 
oh, Jews already believed what Pope Francis was saying. Actually, Jews and Catholics, we believe the same thing here, <laughs> which is kind of a really interesting reply. He even goes on to cite a uh, contemporary of our time, Jewish rabbi, who claims, tries to say the same thing, that the law can't save. So what's interesting about it is the response is, actually, Jews and Christians believe the same thing, which is kind of consistent with um, the whole ecumenical uh, approach. But it right. doesn't actually answer the question they asked about the old law being superseded by the new law, which is what there really is pretty kind of it is a logical implication from what Francis said, doesn't even touch that, just moves away right. from it. So again, it's kind of a, what are you complaining about? We all believe the same thing anyway. Well, clearly the rabbis don't think that or they wouldn't be so worked up. But it's interesting. I don't know if a further clarification will come. My gut still says, maybe not Francis directly, but through the cardinal and the uh, uh, the pontifical dicastery for relations with the Jews, that they will issue a clarification. But uh, again, it's interesting that, you know, the uh, the sycophants who defend the tyrant come running in, rushing to to clarify and save him. But nobody does that when he you know, repudiates the the extraclasium nulla salis in the Abu Dhabi document, for example. So maybe more right, updates, exactly. but but this appears to be somewhat of an answer. And interestingly, I just want to point out one other thing for our listeners. So uh, this Archbishop Fernandez says, Jews and Christians alike recognize that the external law alone cannot change us without the purifying and transforming work of God. And he cites Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. Well, here's what that, those, uh, that text says. And I will pour upon you clean water, and you shall be cleansed from all your filthiness, and I will cleanse you from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. The church has always understood that to be a prophecy about baptism. So it, it's not saying that that actually, that reality actually took place in the Old Testament. It was the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel looking forward, forward yes. to the new covenant and the sacrament of baptism. Yes. So, so Jews and Christians do not hold to the same. I mean, Jews obviously don't accept uh, the necessity of Christ and the necessity of baptism in order to bring about interior justification, uh, regeneration by water and the Holy Holy Ghost. Yes. So it's it's incorrect to claim that Jews and Christians alike recognize that the external law alone cannot change us. Um, I don't think that practicing Jews would agree with, with that. No. So, I don't think so, but so, we'll keep yeah. watching this. Yeah, we'll definitely keep watching and, and provide updates as they become available. So All speaking right. of Pope Francis saying things, he yeah. has uh, another part of his Great project of magisterium by random interview uh, apparently took place. Yes. Uh, we had just uh, released a, a wi really wide ranging, I would actually maybe call random, random, <laughs> and, uh, you know, discon right. disconnected stream of consciousness interview. Uh, apparently, lasted about 75 minutes that Pope Francis granted to COPE, which is a Spanish radio station. Uh, he was interviewed by Carlos Herrera. Uh, and again, when I say wide, we're going to talk about some specific topics, but it, went, it talked about uh, traveling to Spain, soccer matches, uh, I mean, just bizarre topics, obviously the Pope's health, um, but, you know, yeah, just it's kind of a strange mixture of like pop culture topics yes. and, and very serious, you know, internal church issues. Yes, so. exactly. Um, so we don't have time to cover all of that extensive interview. It, it, it is parts that are very weird, but we will look at Francis's comments on the 2013 election of himself and the pontifical agenda, what he's been doing, right. his praise for the secret China deal that we've reported on, uh, essentially appeasing the communists, and Cardinal Agostino Casaroli, uh, who was really one of the uh, uh, really bad guys that were part of implementing Vatican II as the former right. Secretary of State. Basically real, part of the deep church during the yes. reign of John Paul II. Yes, and a real false friend of Fatima. Yes. And then finally, we'll touch on his really revealing remarks about traditionis custodis in, in one question. So first, uh, the pontifical agenda. So he was asked, 
Are you satisfied with the changes undertaken? Or is there anything pending that you would like to finish off imminently? So what we're going to see, I think, in Francis's response, which we'll look at, is number one, he plays this game of blame game. Like, oh, it's not, you know, not me. I, this is just, I'm just doing what everybody wants me to do. I'm just doing what the Cardinals told me to do. It's really astounding well, what he admits in this quote, it, as you'll see. It, it will be. But it's interesting because you'll see this same theme in Traditionis Custodis. Like, people are unhappy. Oh, don't look at me. I'm just doing what the bishops want. I'm just their tool, which is right. a joke. I mean, it's just clearly <laughs> not true. But but two, as Matt sort of said, he's kind of admitting the the uh, St. Gallen Mafia plan takeover um, that, that happened in 2013. So listen to his response. Quote, obviously the appointment took me by surprise because I, I noticed that, that that wasn't part of the question. Notice no. that as well. Actually, you see that throughout the interview. The questioner asks something and he responds with something that's really totally unrelated. Right. Um, <laughs> and this sentence is another one that I think our friend Chris Ferraro would call ostentatious humility. Right. Obviously, the appointment took me by surprise because I came with a small suitcase. I uh, talked. <laughs> then he went on about how he has a spare cassock in the Vatican for when he's there. <laughs> it was just kind right. of very bizarre. Uh, but I didn't invent anything. What I did from the beginning is to try to put in action what we cardinals said in the pre-conclave meetings for the next pope. The next pope has to do this, 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 this. And this is what I started to do. I think there are several things still to be done, but there is nothing invented by me. I am obeying what was set at the time. So again, he's basically admitting, I mean, he's really saying I'm, I'm the instrument of a plot. I'm an instrument of a, right. a group and uh, it's not me. I'm just doing what I'm told. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just their, uh, their, their instrument. Uh, don't, don't blame me if the church is being wrecked because uh, I'm just doing what they told me to do and saying there's basically a concerted plan. He also right, referred. I mean, just let that line, that final line, sink in. I am obeying what yes. is set at the time. Well, you're that's, the supreme a... pontiff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he also refers to Evangelium Gaudium and says um, that this was a working roadmap that he tried to summarize what we cardinals were saying at the time. Well, first of all, you're not a cardinal. We cardinals, you're the pope. So I don't know what that's right. supposed to mean. But right. but again, we've been saying that all along. I mean, since it came out, I mean, uh, John Venari had a whole article about it. This is the roadmap for what he's going to do. And he's basically said, I've been ticking them off all the way through this. I've yep. been attacking the traditionalists. I've been transforming the church. Everything's been changing. I mean, it really is. And, and he does go on to sort of justify himself because it's interesting. Some follow-up questions are like, well, what about the reform of the of the Curia? Oh, yeah, I've really done that. I've done great things. I've done with all this corruption. But then they ask about Cardinal Beckhue, who's, you know, on trial for corruption. And he kind of hedges like, oh, well, maybe he's innocent. Right? And he, yeah, I hope he's I innocent. Hope he's innocent. <laughs> and again, he basically doesn't admit he hasn't cleaned up anything that we have still uh, obviously clear, you know, sexual predators and, and, and financial corruption going on. And we're, we were told in some of the documents in that trial and uh, as Archbishop Vigano points out in his uh, testimony that Pope Francis personally approved the purchase of that wealthy Sloan Square London apartment that was another financial boondoggle right. that's at the center right. of the Becu thing. So again, he just sort of, I'm just this poor guy, just doing what the Cardinals wanted. And I've done so much to fix the church and there's more to come. So just a total apology, apology for his whole, whole pontificate, including the deadly Chinese deal, which Matt's going to talk about. Yes. So, yes, uh, among the many topics brought up during this interview, which, as Brian mentioned, lasted about 75 minutes, it was conducted sometime over this past uh, weekend, August 28th, 29th, according to the outlet that conducted it. Uh, the question was asked at one point, let's talk about China, if you would, your holiness. Within your own ranks, there are those who insist that you should not renew the agreement that the Vatican has signed with that country because it jeopardizes your moral authority. Well, as a side note, he already did renew the agreement. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but then the question ultimately is, do you have the feeling that there are many people who want to set the Pope's path? And he kind of jokingly says, you know, oh, when I was a, a, a layman and a priest, I always thought I knew what was best for the bishop, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately he says, China is not easy, but I am convinced that we should not give up dialogue. And that's the central theme of, the, of his answer is the word dialogue. 
uh, more, it, whereas it really should be appeasement, appeasement of the Chinese Communist Party is what's going on. Uh, he goes on to say, you can be deceived in dialogue. Yep, you sure can. <laughs> uh, he says, you can make mistakes, all that, but it, it is the way. I guess, according to him, nevertheless, even if you can be deceived and make mistakes, it's still the way. He says, close-mindedness is never the way. Uh, what has been achieved so far in China was at least dialogue. I guess that part is true. I mean, that's really all that has been achieved. We haven't gained anything for the poor the Catholics, no. the church there. No. Everything has been gained by the Chinese Communist Party, and nothing has been gained by the church. He goes on to say some concrete things like the appointment of new bishops slowly, but these are also steps that can be questionable and the results on uh, one side or the other, which that's, I think that's just an example of kind of a gob gobbledygook answer. We don't really know what to make of that. Well, again, uh, it's the Vatican II God of dialogue. Everything's for dialogue. What, what are we, what's the point of dialogue if you're not getting anywhere? Right. This is John Paul II, you know, basically said, we don't know where we're going with inter interfaith dialogue, but we're going there nonetheless. I mean, this, you sell out the underground church to have a dialogue where you're right. being deceived. And you, <laughs> he's almost admitting mistakes and deception coming close to exactly. it. <laughs> so something that really stuck out to me, as Brian mentioned in introducing this story, he mentions, uh, pra he praises and says, quote, for me, the key figure in all this, meaning the, the you know, approach to China and who helps me and inspires me, is Cardinal Casaroli. So for those who may not know, Cardinal Agostino Casaroli served as Vatican Secretary of State under John Paul II. He served from 1979, so just shortly after JP2's election to 1990 when he retired. And I had a, a quote come to mind from our, our good friend Chris Ferrara's book uh, that came out in 2012 called False Friends of Fatima. On page 25, here's how Chris describes Cardinal Casaroli's terrible legacy. Quote, the two most famous architects of Ostpolitik, which basically means quiet diplomacy towards communist regimes, as opposed to outspoken denouncement of those evil regimes, the two most famous architects of Ostpolitik were Archbishop Agostino Casarole, employed by the Vatican Secretariat of State under John XXIII, Pope who opened Vatican II, and elevated to the Cardinalate and the Office of Secretary of State under John Paul II. So he had a long diplomatic career. The other main architect, Chris says, is Cardinal An Ancile Silvestrini, a top-ranking Vatican diplomat under Secretary of State Casaroli. Casaroli would be succeeded uh, by Cardinal Angelo Sodano, who would continue the Ostpolitik throughout his tenure. He would also cover up the horrible crimes of Father Marcel Maciel, the uh, Legionnaires of Christ. Uh, and then he goes on, as would his successor, Cardinal Tarcisio Bertone. All of these men are false friends of Fatima of the first degree. Terrible. So Chris ends this section by saying the policy continues to this day, this Ostpolitik, as we see with the Vatican's studious avoidance of any condemnation of the vicious persecution of the underground church in Red China, end quote. And remember, he was writing in 2012 under the, the reign of Benedict XVI, so obviously it's gotten exponentially worse under Pope Francis with the, the secret deal hatched by um, Cardinal Paroline, the current Secretary of State, and Uncle Ted McCarrick, basically. Yes. And Casseroli was involved in, the, in setting up that meeting in, in Germany where the Vatican, before Vatican II, met with the Soviet communists and made the, the Metz, deal. Yeah, the Metz Pact. I think. The Metz Pact. You made the deal that um, you would send a heretic, schismatic uh, archbishop. Basically KGB agents agent, and Catholics. Yes, yeah. From the Patriarchate of Moscow in exchange for us agreeing that we will not condemn communism. And right. that's why the 450 council fathers who wanted to condemn communism had their request lost. Because it yeah, went against the deal. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's again who, who we're dealing with here. But interestingly, although communists get appeased and, you know, the goal is dialogue, can't tell them no, 
the next topic is where dialogue is not really that important to Francis. It is right. Traditionis Custodes, and the interviewer asked about it. Here's the question. We're going to have another really interesting response. Yes. I don't know if Pope Francis is a man who likes to bang his fists on the table. Let's pause there. From all the accounts we get from various biographers in the Vatican, yes. he is the guy. He shouts at people. People are terrified of him. Uh, he's apparently, yeah, the kind of person that, quote, bangs on the table, literally yes. and figuratively. So I don't know if that was tongue in cheek. I don't know if you're the guy. <laughs> Would it be possible that the blow on the table has been the pontifical document limiting the celebration of the Trinitine Masses? And I also ask you to explain to my audience what the Trinitine Mass is, what is about the Trinitine Mass that is not mandatory. Well, he doesn't really address any of those questions at the end, right. um, but he uh, starts off, this is the classic you know, tyrant who's so obsessed with himself. He actually begins by getting offended that he's being called a mean, nasty person. <laughs> so his first answer is, I'm not one to bang on the table. I don't get it. I'm rather shy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like nothing to do. I just, I, I laughed when I read that. I thought that's right. just incredible. He says, the history of Traditionis Custodis is long. When first St. John Paul II and later Benedict made clear, uh, uh, more clearly with Summum Pontificum, gave this possibility of celebrating with the Missal of John the Twenty-Third, prior to that of Paul the Sixth, which is post-conciliar, for those who do not feel good with the current liturgy, who had a certain nostalgia, it seemed to me one of the most beautiful and human pastoral things of Benedict XVI, who's a man of exquisite humanity, and so it began. So first of all, it had nothing to do with nostalgia. There was a little bit of talk of that under Paul VI when he let a few old priests continue doing it. But by the time of Samorum Pontificum, Benedict XVI was very clear that it wasn't just nostalgia. Now, he didn't get it quite right himself, but he did realize it was about preserving the church's tradition and the treasures of the church. And typically the term, the and, I was just going to mention, typically the term nostalgia refers to someone who's longing for something from their past, especially like their childhood. Well, I, just like you, I mean, you and I, we never had the traditional mass as children. So how can we be nostalgic for something we never and, had? And even Benedict points that out in his letter to the bishops. He said, we have to take account of this. I mean, there are people going to this who didn't even know it, young people. He took note of the young people right. that obviously couldn't be nostalgia. So again, that's just, just nonsense. And again, it's just how can we take you seriously? You're praising how wonderful this thing that you just destroyed right. was. It's really insult. I mean, it, yeah. to me, it comes off as very disingenuous flattery of Benedict XVI, while at the same time just demolishing his legacy. Yes. Now we get this sophistical justification for why he did it. And remember, I said in the beginning, this theme's going to come up. Another, not my fault. I, I didn't. It's not my fault. So here's, okay. here's what he says. After three years, he, Benedict, said that an evaluation had to be made. And an evaluation was made, and it seemed that everything was going well. And it was fine. Ten years passed from the evaluation, that, that three-year one he's referring to, to the present. That is, 13 years since the promulgation of Samorum Pontificum. And last year, we saw with those responsible for worship and the discipline of the faith, doctrine of the faith, uh, that it was appropriate to make another evaluation of all those bishops of the world. Well, why was it? I mean, Benedict yeah. decreed, okay, let's just see how this is after three years. They did it. By his yeah. own admission, everything was great. So basically what he's admitting is some people in the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Doctrine of the Faith who hate the traditional mass said, we should do this again because we didn't get the right, right answers three years ago. So we need to have another, um, we need to go we, we, we need asked, another exercise in synodality. <laughs> yes. Well, we didn't get the answers we liked, so we need to go ask for some more ones. Again, there's no justification why this had to be done. No, one, right. no, no explanation. He then says, and it was done. It lasted the whole year. Then the subject was studied. And based on that, the concern that appeared the most was that something was done to help pastorally those who have lived a previous experience was being transformed into ideology. That is from a pastoral thing to ideology. So we had to react with clear norms. So let me get this right. You don't have to react to the clear ideology of communism. You just dialogue with that. But <laughs> the traditional mass, you have to react with clear norms. Yeah. Uh, again, this none of this makes any sense. 
at, at all. So then he goes on. And on the other hand, to support and consolidate Samorum Pontificum, I did more or less the outline. I had it studied and I worked and I worked a lot with traditionalists, <laughs> people of good sense. When did he do that? I mean, right. where are these, who are these, who are these people? traditional people of good sense that he's worked with? He hasn't worked with any of them. He, I mean, maybe, I'm wondering, maybe he means the, the things he did for the Society of St. Pius X, that he gave them the clear, direct delegation of faculties. Uh, maybe. I don't know. But it's just very weird. I mean, he's, right. he, uh, he, you know, and, and he, he didn't do anything to support and consolidate some more. I mean, even since he's been Pope before this, he kind of was signaling, if you want to be a little harsh on it, go ahead. He was letting bishops crack down to a lesser extent. So mm -hmm. none of that makes any sense. I don't know what he's talking about. Then he goes on. And the result was that pastoral care that must be taken with some good limits. For example, that the proclamation of the word be in a language that everyone understands. Otherwise, it would be laughing at the word of God. Where does he get that? First of all, so we need some limits. And so the first one he throws out is, and this makes clear, he, this is going to be mandatory for, for indult and ecclesiastical communities. He says, this has got to be, this is talking about ideology. Reading the readings of scripture in the Latin Vulgate is laughing at God. So where I guess all the saints and popes and bishops of the last 2000 years laughing at God for right. all those 2000 years. So it implies that if you don't proclaim the readings in the vernacular, somehow you don't take seriously the word of God, which is absurd. It's absurd. And again, this is the example he pulls up of limits that have to be put on. And it's um, also ridiculous as, uh, you know, Dr. Taylor Marshall did a podcast on this subject yesterday and he pointed out, I mean, it's basically universal custom. I'm sure Brian can attest to this as I, as can I, that, you know, at, at virtually every traditional mass, after the readings are either read or chanted in Latin at the altar, the priest will read them in the vernacular uh, from the pulpit before preaching, at least on Sundays. On Sundays, anyway. yeah, on Sundays or holy days, yes. But again, th this is the whole idea. I'm talking about ideology. It's the ideology of Vatican II that, again, the Mass is not catechism class. The Mass is not where we're instructed that's the sermon, and that's catechism class. That the readings are read not so much primarily, and there's a secondary effect, but the primary effect is not to teach us. It's to offer back to God the gift of the scriptures he's given us, to praise God in the best way we can by using his own words. Which and is why it's done at the altar as a sacrifice. Exactly. Yeah. Secondarily, if we're reading them or listening, we, we can learn from them. But again, everything in Vatican II has to be turned on its head. It's not about God. It's about you. So if it's about God, it doesn't matter what language it's in. It's in Latin. If it's all about you, well, then you have to understand it or it doesn't right. count. It reminds me of a funny story of a, a French priest. I remember who, uh, and this was before they changed the promultis for, for, uh, for, for many. And there was a, a person who was defending the Novus Ordo saying, well, mm -hmm. I have a right to hear the words of consecration. It doesn't count if I can't hear the words of consecration. Mm -hmm. That's why I go to the Novus Ordo or the new mass. And he said, oh, maybe you can hear the words of consecration, but they are the wrong words. So what does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was very funny. But again, the right. point is the words, that's why we don't, they're not for us. They are for God right. and he can hear a whisper and he can hear in Latin. So again, this is just, that was just the most non sequitur. And to think about it, of the limitations, what about like, you can't have any more masses, you no more priests can say it, but that's the one he picks up as, or are, are just reasonable limitations. Okay. He goes on. After this motu proprio, a priest who wants to celebrate that is not in the same condition as before. So he's making this clear that new, you cannot celebrate on your own. Right. This was for nostalgia, for desire. And so he has to ask permission from Rome, a kind of permission for bi-ritualism, which is given, really only, <laughs> given only by Rome. Like a priest who celebrates in the Eastern Rite and the Latin Rite, he is bi-ritual, but with the permission of Rome. So what he's saying there is true. If you are a Latin rite priest and you want to offer a Byzantine, you can't just go do a Byzantine rite. You do have to get permission. Frankly, if you're a baptized Latin rite, you need to get permission to switch over and go uh, become Eastern rite. Right. But, but again, this what's interesting about this is he's basically saying the traditional Latin mass is a totally different rite. It's not a Latin rite. It's not a Roman rite. 
And this is what, again, coming back to what he tried to claim in, in Traditionis Custodis. So, so what is it? It's not an Eastern, right? Damon's just, it's, he doesn't even, he's not even being logical. It, but it's also an admission that the new mass is, as Paul yes. VI said, a new right. It is a different, a substantially different right. Right, which Francis contradicts himself because in the letter of the bishops, he's like, yeah, if you really want the old mass, everything you want in the old mass is in the new mass. He tries to say, again, which it's not. And right. every study shows, I think, 70% of the prayers are not there. But so on one hand, he's saying, ah, it's all the same. But here he's saying it's so radically different that you have to get permission from Rome because it's right. not even that, the same That is right. the equivalent of an Eastern rite. Right. <laughs> so either everything's there and it's the same thing or it's not and you need permission. So again, right. it's just – now this makes clear because there's been a lot of apologists like, oh, the whole thing, the bishop can grant permission. He just has to notify or consult with Rome. He's being really clear what he means by this, permission from Rome. So the yes. bishop's not allowed to grant permission to a new priest to celebrate this mass. Got to be permission from Rome. He then says, if you read the letter well and read the decree well, you will see it is simply a constructive reordering <laughs> with pastoral care and avoiding an excess by those who are not. Thus uh, says the Ministry of Truth from yeah, 1984. <laughs> exactly. It's just constructive. So this thing that's really destroying is really building up. I, I mean, it's just insane. Absolutely, absolutely insane. Um, and just so like, I think the ministry of truth is the best example that I can think of because it's, it's, it's a it's constructive the reordering, which is actually a destructive disordering. <laughs> yes. Crazy. Yes. Very true. Yeah. Well, as a kind of, before we, 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 uh, go on as a sort of follow-up to this part of the interview, there was another story that came out this week, as I think we reported on, I can't remember if it was the newscast or we just posted it, uh, the superiors of the uh, so-called Ecclesia Dei communities uh, called for a meeting. They said they were going to get together yes. and um, talk about what to do in light of Traditionis Custodis. And so this, this was assault. just to clarify, this was not them being summoned to Rome, which, which very which, well could happen in the future. They were, this is them organizing themselves and they yes. met earlier this week. There's a picture of them on the screen. There's a picture. They met in France earlier this week. And I have to say, we'll, we'll look a little bit at this. Um, it's it's really sad to read. It's almost, both Matt and I kind of agree, it sounds like an abused child who's like, please, daddy, I'll, I'll be good. I, I won't do that anymore. Please, please, please right. stop beating me. I mean, that's really how it comes across, at least uh, really both of us independently reach that same same reaction. Um and so it says, um, um, we, the signatories, you know, want to reiterate our love for the church, our fidelity to, to the faith, all that's really good. Uh, but then it says, you know, interesting, we do not recognize ourselves in the description given in the accompanying letter of the motu proprio traditionis custodes. Um, we do not see ourselves as the true church. Okay, that's good. I mean, because no individual group is the true church. We're only part of the church. Right. On the contrary, we see in the Catholic church, our mother in whom we find salvation and faith. We are loyally subject to the jurisdiction of the Supreme Pontiff. And again, this is sort of pledge, you know, bear your, your scar, show your pledge of loyalty and obedience right. uh, as demonstrated by our good relations and that they say they've sent some of their, um, priests to serve in, in diocesan offices. But then here in this list of why we're good children, we reaffirm our adherence to the magisterium, including that of Vatican II and what follows. So they're fulfilling the, the um, mandates yeah. in Traditionis Custodis, basically. Yes. We, again, notice it's not even Archbishop Lefebvre in light of tradition. We, right. I, we are here, we affirm to the magisterium of Vatican II and everything that follows, all that follows. Right. And again, there is a reference to Lumen Gentium 25, which talks about the different levels of ascent, but they're basically saying we accept it all. As evidenced by the numerous studies and doctoral theses carried out by several of us over the past 33 years. Uh, so again, it's we're not bad guys, we're, we're all in for Vatican II. Right. And then they're basically saying, please, 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 what did we really do wrong? Please, we, we didn't do beg, it. We beg forgiveness. We, we beg, beg for a humane, personal, trusting dialogue. <laughs> Again, dialogue. I guess they accept <laughs> Vatican too. We beg for a dialogue. <laughs> 
I mean, it's just unbelievable um, that they're just sort of pleased. And then the, this is really what's um, kind of amazing. The rest of it goes on to say, this is really an interesting challenge, which, you know, all these people gave their lives and professed vows on the assurances of Benedict XVI that this was always going to be allowed and we'd be allowed to do this. Right. Um, they say men and women religious who gave their lives trusting on the word of Pope John Paul II and Benedict XVI. And so they're kind of admitting what you really did. You did abuse us, right? You, uh, right. you, you took this all away from us. Um, they, uh, and, and, you know, saying you, we've been duped here. We've been, you know, talking about we might be deceived in dialogue. They're sort of saying we were, we were duped and we were lured into making vow, permanent vows we can't get out of. And now you've gone back on the deal. So they're right. like, we were good children. We did everything we were told. And you've gone back on the deal. Please, please, please. We beg you. Give us some dialogue. Um, now, they do refer to in this in terms of expecting visitations to come, I think, which is also ominous. So they do seem to know that visitations will be coming and they're, they seem to be worried about it. Right. Um, and uh, the other thing I noticed about it, it goes on, so I'm not going to read more, is they continually quote Pope Francis, which is, right. again, interesting. I mean, I understand the technique, like uses words against him, but they're quoting Amoris Laetitiae and the most troubling parts of it around paragraph 312. I, I, again, kind of, I also read as, look, we're accepting Amoris Laetitiae. We're okay with it. We're using it. Um, really, really, uh, I think, sad. And again, the not meeting it like mm -hmm. Archbishop Lefebvre or Vigano, standing for the truth. This is again outside the scope of your authority. You have no right to do this. Please, please, please give us a crumb um, begging for it. Really, really sad. Mm -hmm. And says, basically signals we're in a weak position. We know it. Uh, it was signed by Superior General of the Fraternity of St. Peter, Institute of Christ the King, Institute of the Good Shepherd, the uh, Fraternity of St. Vincent Ferrer, which is a um, Dominican monastery in uh, Chimere, France, Institute of St. Philip Neri, Missionaries of the Holy Cross, uh, both the male and female abbeys of La Barreau, uh, the Abbey of La Grasse, uh, St. Mary of Lagarde. Uh, the canonesses of uh, Azil, and I'm not familiar with them, uh, the, the, uh, find the adorers of the uh, royal heart of Jesus, sovereign priest. Interesting that it's not signed by Bishop Rufan uh, and the uh, apostolic administration in Brazil. So I don't know if they've been mm -hmm. told they're exempt from this because they signed the same kind of deal. I, what's going to happen to them? Does the diocesan bishop have to approve their masses? That's really not been addressed. So I don't know if they just think they're out scot-free or what, but what's going to happen in Brazil and Campos uh, is, is really an open question. Yes. Yes. So there, as we said, there's so much more uh, in the interview that we just don't have time to cover in today's show. We do encourage you to read the full text. I'll include a link to the, uh, uh, the full English transcript yes. is available from Vatican News. Yes, uh, have a long time to read it because it's, it's lengthy. <laughs> so we're going to end with some uh, um, really good news. Uh, our, our, uh, we have a really good, we don't have a lot of good news to report and not often involving a diocesan bishop. But yes. a bishop from the Arlington uh, Diocese did something really good that Matt's going to tell us about. Did you want to do that first or, or do the, the pro-life Oh, sorry. Law? I'm sorry. Yes. I skipped, we did, I skipped That's over. all right. That's uh, all before right. Matt does that, I have another good piece of news. We have actually two pieces of good news. Texas passed a law uh, banning abortion from the moment a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Uh, and again, most doctors say that's about six weeks from the date of the mother's last uh, menstrual cycle. So six weeks measured from that. Uh, and they're saying if there's any ability to detect a, he a fetal heartbeat, uh, yes. cannot perform an abortion. It's illegal. Now, is that perfect? No, because it's still killing a person before that. But it it would, according to most estimates, stop anywhere from 85 to 90 percent of abortions. Because first of all, most women don't even realize they're pregnant until about five weeks after. Because if they have a menstrual cycle, usually they're not even aware they're pregnant, usually right. until about five weeks. And now usually it's about six weeks that you can detect a, a heartbeat. So we're talking really only a week to figure out you're pregnant and deciding to go to try get an abortion. So again, really under the natural law, they should all be banned. But this right. is certainly a, a huge movement um, towards towards that, um, and commend Texas's politicians for passing it. Um, and interesting, I was reading some of the radical uh, uh, Planned Parenthood, you know, 
ring hand ringing about this propaganda. And they said this so-called law that says when there's a so-called heartbeat because the baby doesn't have a heart at six weeks. But then later on, they said when the, 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 they had to turn away people when the uh, uh, Doppler monitor detected cardiac activity. So you can have cardiac activity without a heart. <laughs> That's like we detected hearing without ears. <laughs> I mean, so they're just not even like they can't even admit it's a heartbeat. They just have to like make this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So any event, the law, as many laws are, they say, here's the law, but there's a period. And then when it goes into effect, it went into effect uh, Wednesday, yesterday. Um, and uh, there this has been done by Texas and other states before restrictions on abortion. Texas had a different restriction that was uh, struck down by the Supreme Court, usually what happens is courts come in and say, no, nope, can't do it. And the law never takes effect and it's unconstitutional. So they actually had prevailed. The, the Planned Parenthood group started suing back in July and they had prepared the Fifth Circuit and said, nope, we're not enjoining it. So there's still litigation. They're still going to argue over its constitutionality. But they said, while we're in the court case, we're not going to say the law can't go into effect. It can. And so the law, they said, goes into effect. Well, Planned Parenthood and their allies ran to the U.S. Supreme Court looking for the Supreme Court to issue an emergency injunction. It was filed with Justice Alito, who referred it to the full court. And as of midnight, when it went into effect on Wednesday, the Supreme Court hadn't responded. And so the law went into effect. The reports were kind of doom and gloom. There was one abortionist I saw who said he usually performs one to 200 abortions a day. I shudder to hear that thought, um, the blood on his hands. But he said today he had 20 appointments and he basically had to send everyone away because under the law, he couldn't do the abortions. Now, you might be thinking, because I had somebody ask, well, why are they obeying the law? Why aren't they just going to do the abortions? Well, here's what Texas did was really clever. They basically, and it didn't, people say it colloquially, deputized private citizens. What it means is private citizens have a right to enforce the law. So they have a right to bring case against an abortion provider for breaking this law. And so what I think Planned Parenthood knows is that I'm sure a pro-life people, and this is a great activity they can do, go find pregnant women who are pro-life, make appointments, go in, get them. And if they don't, if they test it and get the fetal heartbeat and say, okay, let's go have the abortion, boom, right there on the spot, you can enforce the law. And I think they know that what they did is they have the entire state policing this. Um, and I'm, again, if you're in pro-life, go contact the pro-life organizations. I bet they're involved in this. This is, you know, really important because it means it's not just up to the police to find out about it. Any private citizen. So if your daughter goes to get an abortion, you can go and report, hey, I know she's eight weeks pregnant, nine weeks pregnant and got an abortion. And you can get you can take action on your own or, or your your your, you know, uh, the mother of, if you're the father. So that's really an incredible part of it. Yes. So after it went into effect, the Supreme Court actually came out with a decision. Um, so they just let it go into effect without saying anything. And then the next day, they Basically came out during in the middle yes. of the night this past. Yeah, night, the right? middle of the night last yeah. night, uh, five, four. So the uh, as I've always called him, the traitor, John Roberts, who is not really a conservative, joined the three, the um, uh, three liberal justices. Right. Uh, so Sotomayor, uh, Breyer and um, Kagan. And uh, said, no, we should have enjoined this. And the, the remaining justices, the remaining five, three of whom were appointed by President Donald Trump, uh, said, yes, Texas, you can do it. Now, again, they're not saying it's constitutional. They're not saying they're overturned Ro uh, Roe v. Wade. They just said, well, you've got to have a whole trial and you've got to have the briefs. And But while we're doing that, Texas has every right to have their law be enforced, which up until now, whenever there's been an abortion case, they have just enjoined it at this early stage until the end, and then they lost and it never went into effect. So mm -hmm. this is a good thing because it's, as I said, just that one case of an abortion, it sounds like it stopped a couple hundred abortions. Um, so I saw estimates that there were yeah, hundreds and hundreds of abortions that would have happened yesterday and today if not for this. Um, so that's good. But two, it may signal they may be willing ultimately to let the law stand. Why? One of the key requirements to grant an emergency injunction is the person asking for it, the abortionists, are likely to, to win. So you say, I'm not deciding for sure, but at this early stage, it looks like you're going to win, so I'm going to issue the injunction. So that's a good, good sign. And right. we'll know this case is not yet before the Supreme Court, but the Mississippi 
law, which is very similar to this, which had an injunction entered against it, uh, is up at the Supreme Court next term. Well, Interesting. Sleepy Joe, the uh, <laughs> president, the person occupying the Oval Office, he had got really worked up about this. The devout Catholic who receives communion on Sunday, uh, you would think as a devout Catholic would be celebrating saving the life of these children. But nope, here's what he said. Today, and this is his first statement on SB8, the Texas law going into effect, went into right. effect. This extreme Texas law blatantly violates the constitutional right established under Roe v. Wade and upheld as precedent for more than half a century. The Texas law will significantly impair women's access to health care. Stop, Joe Biden. This is not health care. This no. is not health care. Health care doesn't result in the death of a person, right? right. It's not intended to kill someone. Health care, again, you might die notwithstanding the health care, but your goal is not to kill a person. Right. Uh, they need, particularly for communities of color and individuals with low incomes. And outrageously, it deputizes private citizens to bring lawsuits against anyone who they believe has helped another person get an abortion. And so he's outraged by this, uh, this fact that strangers or people with no connection to it could stop people from having an abortion. My administration is deeply committed to the constitutional right established in Roe v. Wade nearly five decades ago and will protect and defend that right. So Joe Biden, the Catholic, will protect and defend the right to kill children. Yes. Way to go. Where are the bishops denouncing this statement? Where exactly are the bishops right. saying you have lost any right to go to communion? And he followed it up today with a similar uh, statement. Supreme Court's ruling overnight is an unprecedented assault on a woman's constitutional rights, which has been the law of the land for almost 50 years. I mean, it sounds almost like the Pope, right? Since 50 <laughs> years of tradition of Vatican II, we can't go back on that. Right. I mean, 50 years, we had an entire country of 150 years of laws protecting unborn children in every state. But right. no, the 50 years gets just like Vatican II gets trotted out by allowing a law to go into effect that will empower private citizens in Texas to sue healthcare providers, family members supporting a woman exercising her right to choose after six weeks, or even a friend who drives her to a hospital or clinic, it unleashes unconstitutional chaos and empowers self-annoyed enforcers, the devastating impacts. I wonder and, who wrote this, because obviously he did. No. <laughs> I don't think he could manage this kind of vocabulary. No. So again, the Catholic Joe Biden, sadly, I mean, should be denied communion on the basis of these two statements alone. Yes, and he also goes on, he gives a shout out to Chief Justice Roberts. Yeah, While the Chief Justice was clear to stress that the action by the Supreme Court is not a final ruling on the future of Roe, the impact of last night's decision will be immediate and requires an immediate response. Yes. Ugh. Oh my, the immediate response should be coming from the USCCB. I tweeted and, and uh, tagged them on my tweet asking them, you know, where's what you talk back in the summer? What was it in May or June when they met? They talked about Eucharistic consistency and forming a national policy. Well, now would be the time, Your Excellencies, to do that. Hmm. So, moving on to our next story, um, we have some another piece of good news. So, the Bishop of the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia, uh, Bishop Michael Burbage has issued a new document entitled A Catechesis on the Human Person and Gender Ideology, basically to counteract that, uh, that terrible ideology, gender ideology, which uh, Bishop Schneider uh, likens to communism, basically, mm. uh, in his book, Christus Vincit. So this, is, as Brian has displayed on the screen, this is the letter that Bishop Burbage released on August 12th, in which he explains, quote, uh, Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, following thorough and robust consultation with experts in theology, bioethics, clinical counseling, civil and canonical law, as well as with priests throughout the diocese, I am promulgating a catechesis on the human person and gender ideology. This document is both an educational resource for those seeking to learn more about what the Catholic Church teaches and why, 
and an evangelical document for those looking to teach the faith and draw others to the truths bestowed upon us by God. I pray that all who read this catechetical resource may be enlightened by the foundational truths it conveys in all charity and draw closer to God who made us and desires that we experience his joy through the vocation he has given us. So it's uh, not too lengthy of a document. I'll include a link in the uh, description to the video, but just to hit on a couple of highlights before we get to our final story. Um, he says and rightly observes in the past decade, our culture has seen growing acceptance of transgender ideology. Again, speaking about in, an ideology that needs to be opposed. That is the claim that a person's biological sex and personal identity have no necessary connection and could in fact contradict each other. That's what transgenderism means. Uh, I'm sure most of our viewers are aware of that. Um, he goes on, according to this view, human identity, quote unquote, is self-defined and becomes the choice of the individual. Consequently, our culture and specifically young people, it's becoming really an epidemic among young people, uh, is experiencing a rapid rise in the number of persons claiming an identity contrary to their biological sex. Uh, attempts to accommodate such claims already have resulted in tremendous upheavals in our social, legal, and medical systems. And this obviously presents a huge challenge for the church. And thankfully, you know, unfortunately, the, um, the official psychiatric diagnostic manual many years ago removed homosexuality from, from its manual of psychiatric disorders, but gender dysphoria is still in there. And it's still classified as a psychiatric, you know, medical condition. Um, so ultimately, this document that he's promulgating, he says, presents the teaching of the Catholic Church on sexual, sexual identity and the transgender issue and offers some pastoral observations. And he goes on to describe, you know, how the church's teaching rests on three principles, namely, number one, um, the human person is an embodied soul, the composite of the spiritual and the physical. The human soul is created to animate one particular body. To, to be a human person means to be a unity of body and soul from the moment of conception. He also talks about, um, in keeping with the witness of scripture, the human person is created male or female. As God says, in, uh, scripture says, male and female, he created them. And lastly, that the differences between man and woman are ordered towards their complementary union in marriage. So it's upholding natural, uh, natural marriage, sacramental marriage. So we commend uh, Bishop Burbage for issuing this uh, important catechetical document, and we encourage all of our viewers to take a look at it when you can. Yes, again, it's good to end with two with those positive stories. Yes. So our, before we go, though, we will point to our website where we publish the latest text, as Matt said, of uh, uh, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano on the Great Reset and the New World Order. Uh, there are many things in here that, that the Archbishop has said previously in his other comments and meditations on the Great Reset, but he really kind of pulls it all together in a, a kind of broad... 30,000 feet. But, uh, yes, yeah. right. History of how we got here and what's wrong. Um, so he starts off by kind of talking about the, the, the current COVID situation, how that's being, um, you know, being used. Um, and, and, but he springs from that, it's not primarily about that, into the whole last 50 years of revolution uh, and how we got here. And there's a really interesting paragraph I just want to read to you. Um, it's, he says, now in the face of a criminal plan, it would be at least logical to denounce it and make it known in order to then be able to avert it and try those who are guilty. The list of traitors should start with the heads of government, with cabinet members and elected officials, and then continue with the virologists and corrupt doctors, the complicit officials, the <laughs> leaders Dr. of the... Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the leaders of the armed forces incapable of opposing the violation of the Constitution, the sold out journalists, the cowardly judges and the obsequious unions in that long list, one would know the extent. Oh, sorry, I, I skipped down a little bit. Excuse me. <laughs> um, I skipped the most important part uh, in that long list that will perhaps be drawn up one day. 
the leaders of the Catholic Church should also be listed, starting with Bergoglio and not a few of the bishops who have become zealous executors of the will of the prince against the mandate received from Christ. And certainly in that list, one would know the extent of the conspiracy and the number of the conspirators. And he goes through to trace this long process of transforming the Catholic Church into what he says it's becoming, the human element at least, the kind of puppet pontif you know, pontiff of the new world ecumenical religion. And he traces back a lot of really interesting history, a lot of characters that have played a role, but even goes back so much to show the connection between the architects of Vatican II, the progressives, and Klaus Schwab, the head of the um, World Economic Forum and the architect of the Great Reset. Um, yes. he, he basically, you know, shows how this history has been unfolding and it's been very directed towards the revolution where we are and that Bergoglio has apparently been elected pope by these forces to put the sort of final punctuation mark on this, uh, this revolution. Uh, and that's what he's been accelerating towards the decomposition, essentially, or the dismantling of the Catholic Church. Uh, again, never complete because the gates of hell will never prevail. It will never prevail. But, right. you know, of the human element, what appears to be a complete liquidation is the actual word he uses, liquidation of the Catholic Church. And he becomes the liquidator uh, so that he can then become, in lieu of the, the, the pontiff, a founder of a philanthropic and ecumenical sect of Masonic inspiration that is meant to constitute the universal religion in support of the new world order. So it's got some real powerful classic Vigano uh, analysis, very lengthy, but you know, if you take it down in chunks and read it, really very, very informative, very well documented. He links to a lot of sources to show the history that he's uh, explaining here. Uh, so right. we recommend you look at our website and take a look at it. And just uh, as a closing note, as I mentioned in the introduction, tomorrow is the Feast of St. Pius X. And in the year 1910, he issued a very important um, apostolic letter to the bishops of France called Notre Charge Apostolique. And it, this, this uh, new text of Archbishop Vigano talking about Pope Francis, what does he say? Um, liquidator of the Catholic Church and the founder of a philanthropic and ecumenical sect of Masonic inspiration that is meant to constitute the universal religion in support of the new order. That's essentially what this Abu Dhabi document and the, mm -hmm. uh, the Abrahamic family house monstrosity in, in Abu Dhabi is going to be with the three, you know, the church, mosque, and synagogue. Well, this harkens directly back to what uh, St. Pius X wrote in Notre Charge Apostolique, if I can quote very quickly before we end. So this is what St. Pius X said back in 1910. And now, quote, and now, overwhelmed with the deepest sadness, we ask ourselves, venerable brethren, what has become of the Catholicism of the Sihon, which was a, a social movement that degenerated right. into communism, basically. Alas, this organization, which formerly afforded such promising expectations, this limpid and impetuous stream has been harnessed in its course by the modern enemies of the church, namely the modernists and the communists, the Freemasons, and is now no more than a miserable affluent of the great movement of apostasy being organized in every country for the establishment of what? Of a one world church which shall have neither dogmas, nor hierarchy, neither discipline for the mind, nor curb for the passions, and which under the pretext of freedom and human dignity, sound familiar, we, uh, would bring back to the world, if such a church could overcome, the reign of legalized cunning and force, and the oppression of the weak and of all those who toil and suffer, end quote. What a prophetic statement. 111 years later, Archbishop Vigano is essentially saying, speaking to Spain Pius X, saying, you were right, here it is. It's right here. It's amazing. Yes. So, yes. Well, good. Uh, we commend all that reading to you and glad we had some mix of bizarre, but also some inspiring stories this week. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed this broadcast, if you're someone who might find uh, some of these stories interesting, please help us do your part by 
yes. liking, subscribing to our YouTube or Rumble channel, and uh, forwarding and sharing these videos with your friends um, and acquaintances. So please help us get the word out. And if you really like the free content, please consider subscribing to our monthly periodical, Catholic Family yes. News. The September issue was just published yesterday. Yes. And with that, we will close, as we always do, by uh, invoking Our Lady and asking for the blessing of Almighty God upon ourselves and, and all of our work, uh, commending all of it to Jesus through Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Eternal Father, I offer you the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the instruments of his holy passion, that thou may put division in the camp of thy enemies. For as thy beloved Son has said, a kingdom divided against itself shall fall. Our Lady of Fatima. Pray for us. Saint Stephen. Pray for us. Pope Saint Pius X. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Wish you a happy feast day tomorrow. Happy first Friday, first Saturday. Yes. And we will see you next week. God bless you. <laughs>